morning. It's great to see everybody who's here. It's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful opportunity to worship God. And I could not have asked Scott to lead a better song for this occasion. That's one of my favorite songs. And that perfectly leads us to the study we're going to have for just a little while. But before we get into the lesson, we just want to mention thank you to everyone who's here. We've had a lot of answered prayers this past week. It's great to see Amy here. And we've had a lot of answered prayers on her behalf. Prayer is powerful and we are thankful. It's a beautiful day. There's a lot of traveling, a lot of people traveling, but thank you for everyone who's here this morning. Please turn your attention with me to the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two, with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Within these verses, we are given a sneak peek, a snapshot into the throne room of heaven. Isaiah the prophet was granted a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to witness the glory and majesty of the Father seated on his throne. And the Bible says that while Isaiah was in the throne room of God, he saw angels. Now what may be surprising is that not all angels are the same. There are different classes of angels. These he sees are seraphim. Seraphim are known for having six wings. They are one type of angel. And these angels, they are seen glorifying God, and they sing a very simple but profound song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's a song that we sing too. We have that song or a song like it in our songbooks. This is a very simple song, but it's one they sing all day long. You could say this is the angels, this is the seraphim, this is their favorite song. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings or seraphim, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. In the visions of Isaiah and of the literature of Revelation, both John and Isaiah, they record the angels singing the same song, if not a similar song. The angels sing glory to God's holiness. God is the most holy. They say this or they demonstrate this truth by calling Him holy, holy, holy. That's like saying He is the holiest of all. Now, when the Bible says that God is holy, it means that He is absolutely righteous, He is only righteous, and He is the most righteous. There is no one and there is nothing like God. He is the purest of them all. The Bible says and the Bible teaches. Witnessing God's glory and being in His presence left Isaiah in a state of awe and fear. Not only were the angels singing, but smoke filled the house of God, signifying His presence. And the posts of the door were left 
shaking in heaven. After seeing God's glory firsthand, Isaiah cannot help but compare himself to God. When men and women truly understand who God is, they quickly understand who they are not. Man's sinfulness and shortcomings are only further magnified when they are in the presence of God. This is a common feeling that godly people experience within the Scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, Isaiah reacts to this scene by this, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 21, the Bible records what Moses felt when God visited Mount Sinai. And as you can remember, in the Old Testament, God's presence was on top of the mountain. There was blackness and tempest and the voice of God, a scary voice. There, Moses says, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, being in the presence of God. Peter, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, when he comes into contact with the power of Jesus, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Anytime a man or a woman approaches God and they understand who God is, they all feel unworthy. They only feel their sense of shortcomings and their sinful state when you come into contact with God's holiness. Whenever a man is in the presence of God, there is no other acceptable response than to humble oneself. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. We will glorify the King of kings. We will glorify the Lord of lords, is what we sang. This is what God commands and demands from us. Like the angels in heaven, everyone on earth who seeks to approach God must recognize His holiness, and God must be glorified at all times. But I'm afraid that Many of us forget that when we come together to worship, God's here just like He was with Isaiah, just like He was with Moses, and just like He was with Peter. God is with us this very moment. And when we truly understand this, it's going to change everything. It changes everything. It determines when you show up and how long you stay. It affects the way you sing and how you listen. It affects the time you, you choose to go to sleep the night before, believe it or not. It affects what you choose to wear to church. It affects how you sit. It changes everything when we stop to realize that God is here and He must be regarded as holy and He must be glorified. It has been said that in a week where you may have gotten accepted into college, received a raise or promotion at work, gotten engaged or married, given birth to a child, or mourned the loss of a loved one. The most important thing in that week and every other week is worshiping God. This is the most important moment of our lives right now. And when you truly feel that, when you truly understand that, coming to church ain't going to be a burden. It'll be the greatest blessing I kind of, I itch myself and I wonder to myself, 
why you even have to try and persuade people to go to church. Because when you realize God's here, there's no other place you'd rather be. Being at church and worshiping is the greatest privilege. It is the biggest blessing. So just for a little while this morning, I want to talk about be holy for I am holy. And our lesson will come from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Simply put, the title is, Be Holy for I Am Holy. God, who is the holiest of all, is pleading for our holiness. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. In these verses, Peter relays the message he received from God and he teaches every Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're a husband or a wife, if you're an elder, a deacon, or a preacher, we all have the same standard. We all have to be holy. We all are expected to live up to God's standard. And the reason behind this is, why be holy? Because God's holy. God is without sin. He is blameless. He is spotless. And we cannot have a relationship with God if we are not holy. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah taught and Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. So sin severs our relationship with our Creator. We must be holy. Now the question is, we've said this word a few times, what does it mean to be holy? Holy is Strong's G40, hagios. It means to be set apart. Set apart. Now there are two fundamental aspects of holiness. That is a separation from sin. And then there is a consecration to service. One is not fit to serve God until he or she removes sin from their life. There must be a complete separation from sin. And only and until we separate ourselves from sin will we be able and prepared to serve God. We cannot serve Him in a sinful state. So Peter explains to us that we all need to be holy. He explains why we need to be holy, but he also answers when to be holy. He teaches us very plainly, be holy in all your conduct. That's all day, every day, all the time. 24-7, 52 weeks, 365. Notice this. He doesn't say, do holy. He says, be holy. That's because being holy, I just said it, holiness isn't something you do. It's who you are. It's who we are called to be as Christians. But you know this? Unfortunately, not everybody lives a holy life. God commands us to be holy every day, all the time. But there are Sunday morning holy Christians. Here's what I mean. 
There's a very popular country song. My mom loves this song. Yeah, we're proud to be young. We stick to our guns. We love who we love, and we want to have fun. Yeah, we cuss on them Mondays and pray on them Sundays. Pass it around, and we dream about one day. Because this is how we roll, come y'all. Now, I say this because a lot of people, for whatever reason, think country music is Christian music. And as you can see from this, that couldn't be further from the truth. I will admit this, though. I like Eric Church, but if you listen to his music, you could tell he's been everywhere but church. So, Christian music is not country music. This explains the problem that many of us face. Some people are only holy right now. And the rest of the week, they live, they do whatever they want. And that's not biblical. That's not how godly people roll. We have to be holy all day, every day, and everything. And you know what? If, you just, if we just approach life, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really say anything about this. Can I do this or can I not? Just ask yourself this. Do holy people do that? And that will answer a bunch of questions. That will make it a lot easier. Ask yourself, is this what holy people do? But quickly moving on, we see that the Apostle, Peter, Peter, the Apostle Paul agrees with Peter in 1 Thessalonians. Here we see the seriousness of holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject men, man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We've said this a few times. Paul and Peter both say Christians are called. Christians are called. Now, when you talk to people in the, in the religious world, they'll tell you this. I've, I've gotten this question within the last two months. Isaac, how do you know when you're called by God? That's a great question. How do you know when you're called by God? Well, the question is, what does being called mean? Before we can answer that, we got to answer what does it mean to be called. And a lot of people in the religious world, they think being called is just some ooey-gooey feeling that you get and you just know God's talking to you. That's not what that means to be called by God. The Bible teaches that God calls all men everywhere through the gospel. Through the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth. He died he was buried. He was risen. He didn't die for his sins, but he died for mine, and he died for ours. That's the good news. And the Bible says that he calls us through the gospel a set of facts, not a set of feelings. But no, make no mistake about it, these facts produce feelings, and if they don't, something's wrong. Something's wrong if the gospel doesn't move us. But God calls us through the gospel, and then Paul says you have to obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 8 and 9. How do you obey a set of facts? Jesus died, he was buried, resurrected. In baptism, you die to sin. You're buried to sin. You raise up, walk in a new life, obeying the gospel. So Paul is saying this, God didn't come up with this grand plan for over 4,000, 6,000 years 
send his son, you obey it just for you to live the same way. God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Holiness is not optional. It is not optional. In fact, in the second verse, or the second part, he says, whoever disagrees with this, take this up with God. This isn't with me. He says, whoever rejects this teaching does not reject the man. He doesn't reject the preacher. He rejects God himself. This is a wonderful reminder. See, when I study with people and things don't come up out of it, like they don't want to obey the gospel or, or whatever, I don't take it personally. Because this verse teaches, don't take anything personally. If someone doesn't accept the Bible, they're really rejecting God. They're not rejecting me. And they're not rejecting us. So when you talk to someone and you feel discouraged because it's not working, the problem's not you. The problem is their heart. And when it goes well, when God gives the increase, it's not because of us. It's because of God. The scripture continues. Jesus taught this in Luke 10 and 16. He told his disciples, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. He says this, don't get all sensitive when people just don't agree with you. When they disagree and when they rebel and reject, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And not only do they reject Jesus, they reject God who sent Jesus. Going on, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13, we're going to see that the brethren from Thessalonica, they didn't have this problem. Everything that the apostles taught, they accepted. Here's what it says in chapter 2 and verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Here's a fundamental difference between why people accept and why some people reject. Not everybody views, I don't even have my Bible up here. Not everybody views the Bible like it's from God. And when you don't view the Bible like it's from God, everything becomes optional. But when we recognize and realize, just like the brethren in Thessalonica, it is from God, it's all essential. It's all essential. We have to do it all. What a great reminder for them and for us that Paul gives. We must be holy. If the importance of holiness hasn't already been stressed, just watch what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The Hebrew writer here, he says peace and, ho and holiness are not optional. If you want to go to heaven, you got to have peace and holiness with other men. Well, you might be thinking, well, what does it mean to see the Lord? He says that if you don't have peace or holiness, not everybody's going to see the Lord. Well, the Bible makes it clear in Acts chapter 1 that when Jesus comes back, everyone's going to see him. 
So that's not what this is talking about. Everyone's going to see Jesus. Not everyone's going to see him and be with him in heaven, though. So the Hebrew writer stresses, you're not holy, no heaven. I know it's very simple, but it's very profound. Holiness is not optional for us. It is not optional for the child of God. Now, we must have holiness. We must live holy lives. Very few people become holy. Fewer people stay holy. God, who not only is pleading for holiness, He commands us to perfect holiness. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word of being holy. It's the I-N-G of being holy. So when you are sanctified, you are sanctifying, or you are focusing on sanctification, that is the verb form of being holy. Sanctification is a process and it is one that is easily disrupted. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So to be holy, it's a process. It begins when you're baptized. When we're baptized, all our sins are washed away. We are made clean. But like I said a moment ago, very few people remain clean. They let sin back in their lives slowly but surely, and it ruins and it messes up the sanctification process. It disrupts it. We cannot let this process become stagnant. God wants us to perfect it. In 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, the Bible says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Some people are content with a little bit of sin in their lives. The Bible says that is not biblical. We have to remove all filthiness, physical and spiritual, and we have to perfect holiness. Now, I wasn't there for this, but there was a conversation a few years ago I heard about. Brother Elias Rodriguez, before church in Farmerville, Louisiana, he was talking to Fred and Donna. And before church, Elias and Fred and Donna, they were talking about how we are going to die growing for God. Each and every day I will use to become more holy than the day before. This is a process that never ends. We're constantly trying to get better and better and perfected bit by bit. What a wonderful attitude. You know, out of all the things that encourage me in this life, it's an elderly person who's been a Christian for 50 plus years. To me, that's the most encouraging thing. And I was visiting Charlene this past Monday, and we were talking about how we want Jesus to come back as soon as possible. And one thing I told her is I said, Sister, this is going to sound selfish. Part of me doesn't want Jesus to come back right now. You know why? 
And she said, why is that? And I said, I don't want to be robbed of being able to be a Christian for 50 years. I'm living my dream to be a Christian. Not everybody thinks like that, though. I want to be able to, like those, those people from old that we look up to who were Christians their whole lives, that's the most encouraging thing. If I could just have that, I don't want him to come too early. But I don't know how much time we're going to have as Christians. I don't know how much more time. But this I do know. The time we have is going to be used for him. And we must continue to grow more and more holy each and every day. Each and every day. The last thing we're going to talk about in our lesson is this. We're going to look at three things that are preventing holiness in our lives. Three things. The first one is this. A lack of discipline. In my short time as a Christian, uh, I had this mother come up to me. She was talking to me about her child. And she said, you know, so-and-so, they're just not good with discipline. What do you recommend? I said, discipline. When someone's not disciplined, the only answer is more discipline. That's the only thing. Here's what the Hebrew writer taught. In Hebrews 12 and verse 10, For they indeed for a few days chastened us, some translations say disciplined us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening or disciplining seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Right here, God explains the role of the father in the home is the disciplinarian. And God explains just like how a father disciplines his kids, that's what God the Father does with us and his kids, spiritual children of God. And the Hebrew writer before this and verses after this, he explains, look, if, if your dad doesn't discipline you, He's probably not your dad. Because we know it's weird. No one. It would be so inappropriate for Scott to discipline Mike's kids or for Mike to discipline Scott's kids. We know that's inappropriate. So when you actually look at it from the Bible speaking, it's a blessing when your father rebukes you and disciplines us. Yes, it's painful. And no, I didn't like getting the belt grown up. But I can tell you this, I appreciate that so much that I got the belt. I wish I got it more because I needed it more. It never feels good in the moment. It's painful, but afterwards it's profitable. It brings forth good fruit. He's saying here, God is saying, when we rebuke you or discipline you as children of God, we do this so that you can learn to remove sin. And that you can be a sharer of Jesus' holiness, a partaker of his holiness. So a lack of discipline is why some people never become holy. They're never held accountable. Reason number two, or what's preventing holiness, the second thing is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. The Bible teaches about four or five concepts in 1 Corinthians 6. 
It says the following. Our bodies are not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Chapter 6 and verse 13. God commands all Christians to flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. Those who commit sexual immorality sin against their own body. Chapter 6 and verse 18. God purchased and redeemed us, and the price was the life of His Son. Verses 19 and 20. And lastly, we belong to God and ought to live for Him physically and spiritually. Verses 19 and 20. Christians must live sexually pure lives. Sexually pure lives. Clean lives. Now, I know this is a lot, but what's going to summarize all of this that Paul said is what the Hebrew writer says. In Hebrews 13 and verse 4, the Bible says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Last week at the Odell's, a couple of the young people and I, we were talking about the Bible, and one of them brought up a question. They said, well, how do, you know it's, how do you know it's wrong to not have sex or to sleep with someone before you're married? And I said, well, that's a good question. And we went to this verse. Maybe you've had the same question. Maybe you've been told your whole life, well, sleeping in the same bed of, of someone that you're not married to, it's just not wise. But you could do it. You just shouldn't do it. Maybe you felt like that. Here's what the Bible says. Marriage is honorable among all. It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter if you're from Africa or Antarctica. Getting married is good. It's good from God. And he says the bed, the marriage bed is undefiled. That's the PG-13 version of romantic intimacy. Romantic intimacy between two married people, it's good. It's not a bad thing. There are some religions where they teach uh-uh, it's bad to have sex even if you're married. The Bible says the complete opposite. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish everyone could be like me and not be married. But it is better to be married than to burn with passion in hell. So if you can't control yourself, get married. Well, when someone is married, this is perfectly healthy and holy to have romantic intimacy as long as it's under the, the bonds and confines of marriage. But then he says this. This gets back to the question. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Everyone else who is not married who does this stuff is sinning. That word for fornicators, interestingly enough, in the Greek it's pornea, where you get and we get the English word porn. And I'm not going to sit here and explain all the things that go on with that. We know. Everything outside the marriage bond, fornicator or adulterer, which one are we, is the question. So, so far up to this point, we've seen a couple things. A lack of discipline and uncleanness through sexual immorality hinders holiness. And the last thing is worldliness. The Bible says in James 4 and 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
James is not talking about, hey, if anyone here loves the planet Earth. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about if anybody loves and is a friend of this sinful lifestyle of worldliness, the one that is influenced and dictated by the prince of this world, Satan, they automatically become an enemy of God. You cannot be in line and have fellowship with God and have fellowship with the world. It's either or. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, you cannot serve two masters, for you will either love one and hate the other. We cannot love God and the world at the same time. Amen. The Bible says in James 1 and verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So James, what does he say? Don't be worldly, be godly. He says there is pure and undefiled religion. You know what that means? There is an unpure or an impure and a defiled religion. Not all religion is acceptable. That's because not all people worship the right way and they're not holy when they do it. There is a right way and a wrong way. And James teaches, he says, here's how you're going to know you have a godly relationship with the Father. When you visit those and you help those who are helpless. When we visit the orphans and the widows, that's how we know our hearts are pure. When you spend your time helping those who can't help you. And this gets back to something. We have widows here. We have people who are fatherless here. You think God cares how we treat them and how we spend time with them? It's a sin to not visit these people. The Bible wouldn't say so if it wasn't. And I can't say much about this right now. Sister Charlene asked me to read a letter that she gave, and I'll do so after the sermon. But her and I have talked about, with tears in her eyes, she asks me, why don't they come and visit me? And I tell her, I don't know. And she says, they say it's too far away, but they have cars. And I say, I know. Getting back to this, we will revisit that in a second. The question for us is, well, what does it mean to be worldly? How do you become worldly? Well, when we live lives like the world, they're not going to ask us where you go to church because we're going to live just like them. Convert them. They've converted us. Worldly people, when someone is living a godly life, it'll change everything. It affects what you drink. It'll affect if you smoke. It'll affect what you watch. Allow yourself to watch movies. It'll affect what you listen to in your music. It'll affect where you go and where you won't go. It's very simple. That's why I get bamboozled or flustered, whatever way you want to call it, when I hear Christians say, you could go to the bar. Everything we cover doesn't make sense if you still think after this, you could go to the bar. Or you could go to the club. 
or you could go wherever. There are certain things we can't do, and it's a privilege that God allows us to do what we do. We must live holy and righteous lives, not sinful or wicked lives. I'll leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. As Christians, we've got to live a changed life. We can't live the same way we have been in the world. Before we were Christians, we have to change. We must live holy every day more and more until Jesus comes back or until we die. Maybe you're here today and you've never had your sins washed away. You've never been made clean. The Bible teaches that the first step is to hear the Bible, to hear the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And after that, we must believe the things we've heard. We must believe that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God, and He died for us. We must repent and purpose within ourselves I'm not going to live the same way I've always been living. I'm not perfect, but I'm not going back to that. I'm going to change. And after that, we are commanded to confess before men our Father in heaven. Confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then we are baptized into Jesus' death, his burial, and resurrection, obeying the gospel. And after that, we are commanded to live faithfully and godly. Maybe you're here and you've already been washed clean, but you've gotten dirty. This happens to all of us in various degrees. We would love to pray for you and with you. If there's one of either class, please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation.